Our scripture reading today is from John chapter 7, verse 53, through chapter 8, verse 11. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground, and they continued to ask him. He stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing beside him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Good morning. Sounded like a golf clap. Good morning. Appreciate you. Um, Man, uh, I am Marcus Doe, one of their pastors here. I'm so happy uh, to be here. I know pastors say that all the time. I'm so happy. I'm so excited. But I am uh, because I think I'm pretty close to 100 days here in Tucson. And uh, it never ceases to amaze me uh, so far. I would say that I think Dave... Uh, your pastor, my friend, I think uh, undersold the city a little bit uh, when it came to food. <laughs> this, I don't know if you know this, if you've lived here all your life, but food around the country is not like it is here. I'm just going to say that right now. It's been, a, it's been a joy and a battle to keep myself from adjusting my belt every week, so I'm glad. Well, we are, we are here for the Word of God, and let me remind you, as I always do, that um, what I'm going to do in the next 30 minutes or so, I will be judged more strictly because of. Uh, teaching and preaching the Word of God is, is a life and death matter for some. Uh, James 3.1 warns us that we should not be eager to become teachers, for those who teach will be judged more harshly, the Bible says. So as I begin, as I spend my time in the study and pray that the Holy Spirit uses the words and the, the thoughts and everything that I do in preparation, I keep that in mind. Uh, it is very serious. I often try to remind myself, because there's always a temptation these days as preachers uh, to be attractional, to be sensational, or to try to be funny, uh, to be entertaining. That pressure is enormous, and my wife will tell you if I come off as funny, It's actually an accident. (laughs) Let's open in a word of prayer. Father God, your name is above all names. And your words are above all words. They never return to you void, the Bible says. Uh, I am so grateful that you chose to use this life, this voice, that I sometimes still can't believe. Um, And so humbled. I treasure your word. May you be my mouthpiece this morning. 
and the words that come out of me and the meditation are in my heart and the thoughts in my brain that I've put on paper and encouraged and prayed, may they come out clearly and may they fall on hearts that will receive them and impact their life going forward. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I'd like to open up this morning by asking you a quick question. You know, as you, as you, if you've listened the past couple of weeks, you know my sermons are usually full with a lot of questions, and that's purposeful. When was the last time you were caught red-handed? Meaning, when was the last time you were caught doing something you were not supposed to be doing? Not in private, but in public. I know the image of a speeding ticket comes to mind for some. When everybody you know, everybody around you, see you do something that everyone else in the room, in a city, in a town, on a block, knows is wrong. When was the last time that happened to you? See, every now and then, I will tell my wife, or tell my kids, or tell my kid that I'm trying to stop eating something. And you guys got to keep me accountable. I need to stop eating this. I need to stop eating that. And usually it's cookies or peanut butter or Oreos or gummy worms. Now you know my favorites. Um, I want to stop doing that. However, every now and then, after two days, three days, and a week moment, I'll go downstairs and try to sneak a couple of Oreos, and inevitably I'll get caught. Um, and we laugh. But that feeling when you're caught, it sticks with you. What is your neighbor's? on your street, found out that you eat cookies. It's not a big deal, right? But if your neighbors would have found out that you were cheating on your taxes, maybe you shoplift, you look at porn. If everyone on your block knew your deepest, darkest secret, if it's all laid bare, what would you look like? How would you feel? Where would you reach for grace? When I was 12 years old, I was a refugee in West Africa. And my friends and I were sitting on the porch, you know, just kicking it, you know, talking, doing different things. And we're in a fenced-in compound. And I heard this commotion going on down the street. And I peered over the fence. We all peered over the street because it was really loud. And there were a bunch of people, and it was a lot of commotion. And I asked my friend, he was a Ghanaian, I said, hey, Justice, what's going on? He said, oh, they just caught a thief. And they were stoning him. This is 1991 or 92, not that long ago. And this man had been caught in broad daylight, red-handed, stealing. I don't know what he was stealing, but as we peered over the fence, you could see the dust and the commotion. And people had, were having no mercy on them. Ironically, it was right across from a church. No one came out of that church. That image stuck with me. And I was reminded about that image this week. If you have your Bibles, meet me in John 53, as Megan just wrote. John chapter 7, verses 53 to 8, verses 1 through 11. I've titled this sermon this morning, The Guilty That Justified and the merciful, kind of the good, bad, the ugly, if you will, but the guilty, the justified, and the merciful. If you're at John chapter 7, 53, there's a couple of things. One thing I would like to address up front about this passage. If you're a Bible student, scholar, or intentional Bible reader, you would notice that 
this passage is actually is surrounded by brackets in your Bible. Uh, if, you, if you're a keen observer, you can see it, right? The brackets are there to indicate something, right? This passage is surrounded by these brackets. And let me address that bracket before I move on to this sermon. Bible translators and manuscript writers kept meticulous records. They took time to copy the manuscripts of the scriptures over and over when they were passing it down for centuries. This particular story that we are going to study this morning is not found in some of the earliest manuscripts. So in many Bibles, you will notice that this story is in, is in, is, is in brackets. This is with the highest interest in, in, in historical integrity that the brackets have been placed. Um, commentators have two reasons or two thoughts why. One, some, some, some commentators and some Bible scholars say that the brackets, were, this story was placed there because some early church fathers believed that or feared that this story, when inserted into the scriptures, they took it out, was inserted into the scriptures, it would, it would make adultery, the subject we're talking about today, seem like a minor infraction. So they took it upon themselves not to include it in some of the early manuscripts. The story itself, however, some uh, commentators would say, has historical veracity, which means it's absolutely true. It was held as a piece of oral history about Jesus that could not be denied. It's consistent with Jesus' behavior, right? It's not off in the distance. In the interest of honest scholarship and biblical accuracy, it is placed in brackets to indicate that defect. That detail. This is a story not found in some manuscript, but you can trust your Bible. They didn't just say, oh, we're gonna, just going to sneak it in there and not tell anybody. It's open for all to see that this story is not in some manuscripts, but most manuscripts it is found in. So you can rest assured. In this passage of Scripture, we're looking at a scene, right? A well-known, well-quoted well-talked-about scene. In this scene, there are three people or groups, and I'm going to focus on the three groups this morning and three perspectives so you can see yourself in the story. The guilty, the justified, and the merciful. Let's look at each. I'll read verse 1 to 5 for, for emphasis here. It says, verse 1, But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives early in the morning. He came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? Oof. Jesus, what do you say? The woman is the first perspective I like to tackle. She is guilty. By law, by public opinion, by human decency, by word on the street, she's guilty. If you look back in Hebrew law, in Old Testament law, Leviticus 20, right, is what the Pharisees have seen and are saying. They say if anyone is caught in adultery, both parties should be stoned. It's also repeated in Deuteronomy 22. They command that adulterers be killed. 
She's a member of the community, this woman, and everyone has a problem with her. There's a marriage that's being destroyed because of her. She is someone that if she was stoned to death, few people would miss her. Someone that in our culture we would say should be canceled. Someone who is done wrong by everybody. My question to you as we go is, do you know anyone like that? Someone is guilty by everybody. They've done they're caught right-handed. They're all out in public. You can see their sin. Do you know anyone who is desperately in need of forgiveness this morning? Desperately in need of grace. Because this woman is in the middle of, of, of the court, and she's going to be stoned. She's going to die. The ruckus. And the Pharisees asked Jesus, what do you say? Maybe you don't know anyone like that. Maybe you don't know anyone who's been caught red-handed, but I do. I do. I stare at that person every morning when I'm trying to get ready for work. When I'm brushing my hair, is trying to get waves. If you're not sure what waves are, we can have lunch. As I stare in the mirror, my toothbrush is buzzing. I'm looking at this face who's in desperate need of grace. I stare in his eyes as I put lotion on my face. As I do my mental checklist for the day ahead, I look at a man desperately in need of God's grace. I look at a man who was once lost, but has been found. One who was desperate. That man in the mirror, it's me, and it's you. One such man, as we step in, is a gentleman who lived long ago. His name was John Newton. John Newton is one of my favorite illustrations to quote. In late November 1772, a 47 year old pastor who had lost his mother at a young age, and his father went on to remarry, and they had. His father had other kids, so he was kind of pushed aside. He grew up kind of isolated and became a member of a crew team on a ship. And these ships that he was on scoured the African coast looking for human cargo. He was a man deeply involved in snatching black bodies and selling them into a lifetime of forced unpaid labor. A man so vicious that his fellow shipmates were weary of him. He's a merciless man. A self-described wretched man. A man who separated families. A man who changed communities. He changed lives. A man who committed crimes whose effect we still feel today. A man devoid of empathy in the execution of his duties. But one night, on March 21st, 1748, a few years earlier, his ship was caught in a terrible storm. A storm so harsh, it, it appeared it had no match. The ship could not match the storm. In the midst of the storm, a crew member flew overboard and was never seen again. 
So John himself came up, John Newton himself came up and took control of the steering of the ship. In desperation, he raised his voice in the middle of the storm. And he cried out to God and says, have mercy on us. That storm raged for 11 hours. His desperate call to God was answered. And for the rest of his life, he was changed. John Newton went on to accept a pastoral call. Though the log of the slave trade still remained in his eye, and in most of societies in the church, I might add. But because of the mercy that God showed him, though still steeped in sin, he recognized his need for forgiveness. And he sat and penned these words. I'm going to read this to you and see if it sounds familiar. These are his words. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that gift, that grace appear the hour I first believed. My chains are gone. I've been set free. My God, my Savior, has ransomed me. And like a flood, his mercy reigns. Unending love. Amazing grace. There's much more to that poem that he wrote. But I suspect you had a tune in your head. I suspect you remembered the story. You remember the hymn. The question is, where were you when the Lord found you? It may not have been on a slave ship. It may have been in your living room or somewhere around this city. Jesus has found this woman in the middle of the town courts on the verge of death by stoning, having been caught in sin right-handed. In the sight of a crowd eager to exact justice, she is caught in sin in public. She is guilty. She is the guilty person. She deserves to be stoned according to the law. Let me shift my attention to the crowd. They are the justified, I call them. By law, verse 5 says, now the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? Two things I would like to point out before we move on from this. Such women, quote, such women. Where's the man that she's committing adultery with? He's not brought out with her. Leviticus 20 says both parties should be stoned. The law which she is guilty of says both parties. But where is the man? See, last week we talked about the Pharisees doing their homework with the homework not being done. This is a perfect case. They brought the woman but not the man. Not according to the law. So does Jesus know the law? He communicates clearly that he does. The law says stone her. But who among us can stone her? Jesus knows the law. 
but the Pharisees do not eventually. If you don't have any sin, Jesus says to the Pharisees, feel free to stone her. If you are as religious and as pious as you claim, you walk around this city, you know, all high and mighty, go ahead, start stoning. The Bible says in this story, from the older ones to the younger ones, they all started to walk away. The older ones, I would argue, I'm reading the white spaces here, probably know better. They've been around the block a few times. They know their sin, right? They're the first to recognize, man, I can't be stoning nobody. You don't know what's in my closet. In verse 6 and 8, a key part of the story is left out. Let me read verse 6 for you. It says, this they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against them. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. As they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And, and once more, excuse me, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. <clears throat> the key part of the story here is Jesus writes on the ground. The Bible doesn't tell us, or John doesn't tell us, what he wrote on the ground. All right, It's not recorded. However, I would say this. This is where kind of coming from another culture really helps. <laughs> right? In my culture, in West African culture, and I suspect in many other cultures that are not Western, when there is a conflict between two people and one person is wanting to vehemently defend their position, their territory, their stake or claim, they defiantly will draw a line in the sand, dividing what's theirs and what's out there. I've seen old men get in conflicts and one man says, I will draw, you cross this line and see what happens. You step into this. I'm suspecting this is what Jesus is doing. So in a sense, Jesus is saying, she is with me. You cross this line. See what happens. You better not cross this line. See what happens. As African-American grandmothers and mothers would say, and I'm going to teach you something new this morning, <laughs> what you're not going to do, <laughs> what you're not going to do is cross this line here. That's what Jesus is telling them. Right? Politically, leaders will say, hey, when diplomacy runs out, we see it all the time that leaders will say, this is the line in the sand that this dictator has crossed. This is, this is the line, right? They've stepped over the line. World leaders will say that as a warning that this, this agreement is obviously here and I'm protecting what's mine. And if you come closer, there's going to be something. I'm protecting something. Jesus is standing between her and certain death. Jesus is saying, yes, you are justified by law, but there is a new sheriff in town, a greater sheriff in town. And as the new sheriff, Jesus is saying, if you want to play that game, boys, of stoning sinful people, we can do it. But just so you know, that game would end and I will be the only one standing because I'm the only one that's sinless. Because all of you have sinned. And if you want to do, if you want to demand that someone dies, it won't end well with you. Sometimes we get self-righteous. 
We look down on people in culture and society who have sins that we don't struggle with. Anybody there with me? Saying things like, they got what they deserved. Shouldn't have been there. Shouldn't have done that. Though I'm a sinner, sometimes I hide. We choose to hide in the crowd. Be the ones pointing. Be the ones trying to execute mob justice. But Jesus, the merciful, reminds us of where he finds all of us. Has the Lord found you yet? Has his mercy reached you yet? Right? The crowd is justified by law, but they are missing something crucial. Let's shift our attention to the third person in the, in the story. It's Jesus. I talked about the woman's guilt, the crowd's justification. Now let's talk about Jesus the merciful. Among the names of Jesus that New Testament writers write and describe Jesus as, two of the names that they describe actually is, is, is huge. He's described as both a judge and an advocate. If you haven't been to court before, I've been there a few times. I used to have a lead foot. I try not to anymore. But I know and I'm kind of familiar with judges. They're there for a reason, to maintain order, sometimes to cast, to, to, to give a verdict. So when Jesus is described as a judge, and we see him in that light, the New Testament writers in Acts says, says this. He says, he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. So Jesus has every right to be a judge. But there's another name. There's another side of Jesus. That is an advocate. In, John, in 1 John 2, verse 1, it says this, My dear children, I write this to you, that you will not sin, but if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. See, an advocate is by your side. An advocate is the one that talks on your behalf. It's the one that draws a line in the sand for the lady and said, do not step here. She, is, she belongs to me. The woman is guilty, yet Jesus says, go and sin no more. He does not say you didn't sin. He says, go and sin no more. Go and live differently, he says in verse 11. Even though every, every, I have every right to condemn you, in your sin, I'm showing you mercy. Jesus is both a judge and an advocate. He is our judge and, and, and he's our judge and, lead, and lawyer at the same time. The French word for lawyer is actually advocate. Avocat is pronounced. This woman is experiencing right now Jesus' advocacy. His stand by your sideness, if you will. The Bible says, man, this is, the Bible says this in Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. Let me break this down. We memorize this verse in, 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 
in Sunday school and whatnot, while we were sinners. Think about this lady in the story. She's caught in sin. She's guilty. She is in sin. She's going to be stoned. And Jesus steps in the middle, demonstrating this first. Wow, she's in sin. He is willing to die to take the stones that were meant for her on himself. He is willing to stand between her and her accusers. He is willing to, be, to risk being stoned to death for her. But she's guilty. He is willing to give his life for a sinner. Anybody there? He is willing to identify with an adulterer. He did it for her. Oh, here is the beauty. He did it for you and me. He did it for you and me. Because all of us have sinned and fallen short before God the Father. But Jesus is our advocate who stands with us and makes us untouchable by the law. As I close this morning, I would like to cover just a little bit of ground here. Some might argue that this is not justice, actually. Justice has not been served in this situation. Jesus is not a good judge. He's an unrighteous judge because he's forgiving someone who deserves punishment. He's forgiving someone who should not be, should not be rewarded in any way, shape, or form. She did something. What kind of judge would keep his job in this country by letting guilty people go free? Not very many. Letting offenders just walk the streets? What society would we be living in if criminals and adulterers and cheaters and murderers just walk free? What would Jesus say? The question I had this week as I read the passage is what would Jesus say to the woman whose marriage has been destroyed? Is it justice for her? Jesus is forgiving the person who did something to her. See, those who live by the law, the Pharisees would argue and rationalize and see the unfairness in this situation. It seems very unfair. It seems unfair. Until we're in a lady's place, or we get the big picture. Until we watch, until you experience, until you internalize and understand and get yourself aligned with Jesus as he marches to Calvary. Until we get the depth of suffering that Jesus experienced on the cross, where Jesus, who knew no sin, took on our sin and gave his life so that the wrath of God can be satisfied. If I'm hearing an amen, I'm preaching better than y'all saying amen right now. Amen. What he did for this woman, if you're a Christian, he has done for you. I need you to get this. We are caught red-handed at, at some points in sin. We cannot get out of the situation. We are, we are eligible to be stoned, to be, to be separated from God forever. But Jesus steps in there and says, I will take this on. Jesus stepped in between the executioners and the guilty, the powerful and the powerless. He saved a sinner from death by putting his life for hers. This is what he does Day by day by day by day for all of us. We are at some point in our life like that woman facing death until Jesus redeems us.
until Jesus steps in and redeems our lives. If you haven't felt this, I need you to feel it. At some point in your life, you have, when you're in a place, you say, God, I can't get out of this. But God, but Jesus steps in the middle and he redeems you and he does something that saves you. No matter how much money you have, you can't get out of this situation. You're caught right-handed. You're, you're on the streets. And he says, come, I'm going to draw a line around you and you're going to walk with me. Undeserved. It's a beautiful thing. I want to leave you with the last verse as I close. Says this, John 3, 17. We know John 3, 16. John 3, 17 says this. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. He's an advocate. He's justified to send us all away from God. But he draws a line and says, you are mine. You are mine. That's amazing grace. That's what John Newton felt, even though he was a wretched man. By your heads. Heavenly Father, you are King of kings and you are Lord of lords. God, your grace is amazing. You saved wretched people like us and brought us into the presence of God. May we never forget that the gospel is just that. We were sinners and Christ died. I pray for anyone out watching right now that says, Lord, I feel it. I am a sinner and I need you. May you meet that person where they are. May you meet those people where they are. I thank you for the space we've shared this morning. In Jesus' name.